Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Do you guys hear that? That is the sound of the Lost Boys soundtrack. Once again, that thing turned 30 last week. And to celebrate, we are featuring another artist from it. This week, we get to hear from Steve Eddie Rice, lead singer of Eddie and the Tide. There's a lot more to their story, honestly, than the Lost Boys soundtrack. That's kind of a small thing, although that's probably the song they're best known for. This one right here, Power Play. They were a Bay Area band in the 80s. They put out about five albums. They're all good. The first one is great. That sort of scrappy heartland rock mixed with some new wave. They were coming up with bands like Greg Kinn and Huey Lewis and the News. So if you think about that kind of a sound, to me, their albums got sleeker as the decade went on. And while they were still good albums, they lost a little bit of the magic of what made Eddie and the Tide so great. In fact, their second album was produced by Eddie Money. And to my knowledge, thats I don't know of any other production job he's ever done. Well, anyway, really great band, really worth your time. Eddie today is just a regular guy. He lives and works in Nashville. He's put out a couple solo albums. His last one, which is called The Eddie Rice Project, is fantastic. And I will tell you more about that at the end of the interview. This was a listener request. Mallory Skidmore came up with Eddie in the Tide. And of course, as you guys know, because I love the Lost Boys soundtrack, they were on my mind as well, but I hadn't gotten around to it yet. So thank you so much, Mallory, for pushing this. And I'm so glad we got to have a chat with Steve. He is the best. And I'll re- <laughs> I, he go. His name is Steve Rice, but because of being the frontman of Eddie in the Tide, he gets called Eddie sometimes, and I have to admit, I think I called him both during this interview. Anyway, he called me from his no- home in Nashville. Honestly, that's when I listened to your podcast, I was really taken by the. I just really loved the, the questions. You're asking questions that typically a lot of people don't get asked, and I yeah. thought that was, I really enjoyed that aspect of Oh, wow, good. You, you know, you're at, you've done research. You actually know know, sure. know about your subject. You know, you know what I mean. I could really yeah. see that from your interviews. So I I really oh, enjoyed good. that I'm when glad. I. Yeah. I'm so that's that's really one of the reasons I said, man, this this is this would be a good this would be a fun thing. You know? Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad. Yeah. Well, and I've been you know it's interesting. I've been a fan for, of yours for years since the Lost Boys soundtrack, which I want to ask okay. you about in a second. So I keep a list, and I have like two or three hundred names on this list of just people I wish I could talk to and get around to. And you were—you've been on that list. And one of my listeners, Mallory Skidmore, is her name. She reached out mm-hmm. to me recently, and she said, "You know, could could you try and get Eddie in the Tide on the show?" And I thought, "I've had them on my list forever. Yeah, let's get to this." And that's when I reached <laughs> out to you, and it worked. And so she oh, has cool. some questions that I'm going to incorporate into this into the conversation later. But the biggest thing for me that brought it's and correct me if I'm wrong, it might be the most prominent thing you've ever done is mm-hmm. be included on the Lost Boys soundtrack. I have a mild obsession with that soundtrack. I've had two other people, Gerard McMahon and Tim Capello, on the show who've been yes. on there. So how did that come to be? Okay, well, we were signed to Atlantic Records, and I'll get into that story, you know, in a little bit. But we were signed okay. to Atlantic Records, and um, we had a we were putting our second Atlantic record together with a producer from England called B. A. Robertson, Brian Robertson. Now, B. A. Robertson had some big hits with Mike and the Mechanics, which oh, was nice. Mike, Mike Rutherford from Genesis, the guitar player in Genesis. 
he had some big hits with with him. Uh, one was called "The Living Years," which was a yeah. huge song, um, yeah. and another another was called "Silent Running." And B. A. Robertson had been involved in writing those songs, mm. and so he was asked by Atlantic to produce our second Atlantic record. And at the time, you know, it, <laughs> he was a trip to work with, but he uh, <laughs> he was he was a great lyricist and. I came from a place of, hey, you know, just from respect and, and learning from him, you know, because he was uh-huh. an accomplished, he was a hit songwriter. So anyway, how it came about was uh, was basically Atlantic said to him, look, we're going to be doing a soundtrack for this, this album, you know, this movie, Lost Boys. Uh-huh. And it was actually being filmed in our hometown of Santa Cruz. Oh, where, sure, that's right. Yeah, where yeah. the band where the band got our start. I think even Atlantic saw the, you know, potential of that. And the story is really though that with BA, he actually took some some of our tracks down to Los Angeles and was working on some stuff independently of us at the time. Okay. And actually, a lot of the the actual you know power play song was not was not the band. It was my voice that was on that. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. You're the, the only piece of Eddie in the Tide that's on that yes, track. Which which oh. which was kind of uh it was kind of the beginning of the end with the BA thing because okay. we ended up going our separate ways mm-hmm. after a, after that, which you know uh, you know, it was just one of those things. But yeah. You know, I, I mean I like I say, I, I enjoyed his songwriting and, and he had he had written that song and I went down and sang it. He had already had the track done in LA. And if you actually listen to Eddie and the Tide music, and then you listen mm-hmm. to that cut, you can uh-huh. kind of sense that you can kind of sense that ah, oh, that sounds a little different from what I'm hearing. I, on, I on. noticed that too. Yeah. Yeah, but you know, it did become probably one of the most well-known songs we had. You know. So yeah, and that was a huge movie, and and my girlfriend at the time was actually had a bit part in that in that movie. Really. So. She was excited about that. But, was she know. like on the boardwalk at one of the concerts or something? Yeah, she was in the boardwalk scene. I think it's where they're on a merry-go-round or something. And oh yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But it, it was it was a fun time, and you know, and it helped okay. the band, gave us more exposure, and so. Well, let me let me ask. I hope this is not too sensitive of a question, but I'm curious yeah. because since starting this thing, and I'm, I'm learning a lot about you know performance royalties and songwriting royalties and all those kinds mm-hmm. of things. Because you were the only member of the band that performed on that, are you right. the only one then that receives any kind of royalty for? Because that was a pretty successful th- soundtrack. I, I, that may correct me if I'm wrong. That may have been more successful than any of the Eddie and the Tide albums, individual albums. Well, I don't know. To be, to be totally honest with you, the songwriter got the money. I have not seen. You know, oh, and I, okay. I don't know if it's because maybe we owed Atlantic some money after our two maybe. albums you know, we recorded with them, but I have, okay. uh, unfortunately, and to be totally honest with you, I have not seen, you know, money from oh, that. Oh, interesting. And, yeah, but but I didn't write the song. I yeah, did not write yeah. the song. I sense. sang okay. it. B.A. had written a song, and I came down and sang it, and, okay. and that, that that was it. So. But at least it drew attention to the band. I mean, that's how I heard about you guys, you know? Absolutely. So if it's, Absolutely. Yeah, okay. Turning people on to Eddie and the Tide, and then it goes from there. Well, that's cool. Okay. All right. I didn't realize how that worked. So I don't always start from the beginning on some of these things because I feel like the origin stories are out there. If you just want to simply Google a band, you can find it pretty easily. But I am curious, you guys coming up in mainly the Bay Area in like the late 70s, early 80s, who were some of your peers? 
Were there other bands coming up at the time? Because when I hear, yes. especially the first album, I Do It For You, there's a sort of a rawness there that's not exactly punk, but it's sort of a more streetwise Bruce Springsteen mixed with Greg Kinn, who I know is also a Bay Area guy. So what, right. who are you coming up with? Well, it's funny, you know, and we talked about the Stu Cook, uh, you know, interview that oh, you had yeah, done, yeah. too, and, and I just, I thought that was really insightful. But, I mean, I grew up a big Creedence fan. I grew yeah. up a big, big Creedence fan. I grew up, you know, of course, you know, Springsteen, Mellencamp, all those kind of folky, mm-hmm. uh, you exactly. know, guys, and Greg Kinn, Tom um, Petty. I mean, all that stuff go. that was just these guys that were singing from the heart and from their gut. Yeah. Yeah, that, that was that was my inspiration. So, okay. and you know, and I, and coming, I started out in Nashville. I mean, I was born in Nashville, so I I was raised around country music, and my mom used Got to it. take me to the, to the Johnny Cash tapings when he was on CBS, and I was nice. this ten year old kid watching Johnny Cash from the audience, and you know, <laughs> oh, and, and and so it was great. I so you know, saw so great, you know, and I yeah. don't like traditional country, I, but I do like like Johnny Cash, Willie Nelson, yeah. those kind of outlaws. I'm the yeah. exact same. Yeah, yep. yeah. So, so I came from Nashville, and the drummer and I left Nashville when we were 18 and moved to Santa Cruz. And I don't know, in Santa Cruz there was there was kind of a punk thing going on there. And matter of fact, one of our first shows was with a San Francisco band called the Dills. And, oh sure, uh, yeah. The Dills. Oh, wow. We played we played a small Grange Hall. And the Dills were the headliner, and we were the opener, and we were actually called the Suburbs at the time. Yeah, okay. And so, I mean, we weren't we weren't punk, but we were just trying to be real and and no yeah. BS and 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 just be ourselves, and that's and that's what kind of started shining, you right. know, okay. kind of how we rose up from from some of the other bands. Got it. And, okay. You know, you know, you weren't punk, but there was kind of an attitude there. You know, yeah. It's not unlike it. So that makes and sense. I do, I, I do it for you. Is it's it's still to this day probably one of my most favorite tied recordings. Even yeah. though I, I, some, some of the production I wasn't as happy with, I, I would have liked to see it a little more powerful. But but really? the songwriting and the arrangements, yeah. But the songwriting and the arrangements, I thought I, it, I'm really proud of that record, and I think the band feels that way too. It was Good. before anybody. Okay. It was before anybody, any producers or anybody came in and said, "Oh, this is how you should sound," you know. And we'll get we'll get into that. I'll tell you the story. But, <laughs> right. But, but, well, that's interesting. That actually brings me to one of my biggest questions. I was going to kind yeah. of save it for later, but I, that's my favorite Eddie in the Tide album too. Mm-hmm. It seems to me that over the course of the next three or four albums, some yeah. of the rough edges got smoothed off a little yeah. bit. You know, it's interesting that. Eddie Money, I believe, produced your Go Out and Get It album, right? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Our first Atlantic record, yeah. Okay. Now, I love Eddie Money. I love him. Yeah. But yeah. you guys start to sound a lot like Eddie Money.
I don't know a lot of young bands that are aspiring to sound like Eddie Money. And so I'm wondering if you guys are comfortable with the kind of production that's happening to you or if you like it a little raw or maybe more polished. How are you feeling as the sound throughout your albums is progressing? Okay, I think I can speak for the entire band. And, and so we're, we're in our 20s and we worked for years, getting rejected by every label. The best thing in our early band days was we actually worked from the Santa Cruz clubs on up, and we started breaking into San Francisco a little bit. And there was a club owner, Bobby Corona, that ran three of the biggest clubs in the Bay Area, the Keystones. And these were the three big clubs in the Bay Area. And so he heard us. And he wanted to manage a band, and he heard us, and he said, I've been looking a long time for a band to manage. And mm. let me tell you, every band, every band came through his clubs. I mean, really? You know, Guns N' Roses, Metallica, Ooh. they all they all went through, you know, Bobby's The Stone, it was called, in San Francisco, and the Keystone Palo Alto in, in Palo yeah. Alto. Anyway, he'd been looking for a long time, he saw us, and he just like, he said, man, this is the band. So he signed us to a management deal, and we started kind of breaking out and he he worked us we were in the clubs everywhere through california wherever we were playing uh -huh. our butts off and so we couldn't get a record deal got turned down by a ton of labels mm -hmm. and bobby puts us in the studio to do i do it for you and he helped co-produce that with us so that first record was just us with our manager doing sure. it then then we get we sell about 10,000 copies of I Do It For You. It starts getting radio airplay with Running Wild, Running Free. And that's unheard of for an independent back in that day to get radio airplay, but we were getting it. And Atlanta came came around. They they sent up uh, Paul Cooper from Los Angeles. He was the A&R guy. And he came and saw us at a, a big club, the Keystone Palo Alto. It was a sold-out show. He came backstage afterwards and said, how would you like to be part of the Atlantic family? Wow. And for us, after we we had been driving all over California yeah. in a little yeah. in a little van, you know, whatever, and sure. it was like, okay, so okay, so we get signed to Atlantic. Eddie Money's name comes up. We go in the studio, you know, with him. We tried out a few other producers, but Eddie seemed to get that we wanted to be a rock and roll band, and not you know, not uh -huh. just a pop pop band. But being our first record for a major label, and here's Eddie Money who wrote. You know, he'd written two tickets at ice and, you know, some great, great classic songs, I think. Yeah. And we're kind of impressionable. We're like, okay, this is Eddie Money telling us how to arrange our songs, how, yeah. how to maybe maybe get us some airplay so we can, you know, eat eat more than ramen noodles. All the time, you know? <laughs> so that's what happened, you know, really. He, he, he just kind of, he kind of took over and, and we were a young, impressionable band and, you know, we we kind of listened to him, and looking uh -huh. back, you know, I I know just from talking to the guys in in the band, I know looking back, probably should have stood up a little more and said, "Hey, uh, well, but but well, a lot of times, to give him credit too, I was like, uh, there was a lot of stuff on there. I liked how he he kind of gave it a different vibe than we were, uh -huh. you know. I uh -huh. don't know, there was some some there's a song called This Girl and a song yeah. called It's a It's a Gift that. Um, and a song called What Is This Could Be the One, too, on that record.
I was like, okay, this is, I kind of dig what, what's going on. Right. So, so. Yeah, well, what kid wouldn't, I mean, Eddie Money's an established star, and I, I don't even, I can't honestly think of another album he produced. Maybe he did, and I not, don't know. Not that I'm aware of. I yeah, mean, I don't know like either. I, a big yeah. producer. Yeah. Well, it just kind of happened. That, you know, our manager, Bobby, was talking to uh, the Atlantic people about who to produce us, and we were getting some really good feedback and press in, in, in California, you know, from like the San Francisco San Francisco Examiner and different things were calling us like one of the next, you know, hot bands to break out yeah. of the Bay Area. And, and so, um, and actually, I do it for you, one best independent record from the BAMI Awards, which is the Bay Area oh. Music Awards that's held every year. And, and some of the other bands that won like that kind of thing was like Huey Lewis had come out of that, cool. you know, uh-huh. uh, Greg, Greg Ken, you had mentioned him. Yeah. He came out of that whole, you know, so we were doing good in the in the scene there, but it was just one of those things, man. Yeah. It was just one of those things. He seems like a real character. What was he like? Was he all business? Was he kind of um, scattered? Was he really funny? He, what kind of memories do you yeah, have of Eddie? A little a little of all those things. Yeah, he <laughs> You know, he he he, he loves to joke around. You know, he was he was he was a joker. But he also, he understood, he had worked with some great producers himself. He had worked sure. with, uh, oh, man, the name's not coming to me right now, but he uh, produced Derek and the Dominoes. The, James oh, yeah. Dowd, James Dowd, Tom, I believe. Uh, Tom, Tom Dowd. Tom, Tom yeah, Dowd. That's what I was thinking, too. Tom yeah. Dowd. Yeah. And so here's here's Legend. a guy that's worked with some great engineers, and and so he would tell stories about working with Tom Dowd and, you know, and, and how – you know, his experiences in the music business. And, you know, it was for a young yeah. band, it was great. Sure. It was managed by, by the legendary Bill Graham. Mm-hmm. And so one day, uh, who was, you know, iconic to sure. the band. Especially you know, one, in the Bay one, Area. One, you know, Bill Graham was the, the guy, you know. he was yeah. he, The Stones asked Bill Graham to manage one of their big tours, you know. So, so Bill Graham came into the studio one night and, and was just hanging out, joking around with the band and that. And that was a uh, that was one of my highlights of that whole really session. Yeah, but but Eddie was a joker, and but okay. he was also he knew music and he knew yeah. he loved music, and I think he was really trying to you know help us come up with you know hopefully a hit record, which you know it did okay. One yeah. in a million did it? got one one in a million got to number eighty five on the Hot One Hundred. Five's not close enough to, to talk no. to Andy, but it's, no. it's, it's, for a young band, it's something, you know. Right, it's right. Okay. But, but really, looking back, yeah, it's you know, I would have 
stood up to him a little more and said, hey, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So when that's happening, I, is this the time period when you go out opening for Huey Lewis? Yeah, that's that's a great story, too, because... Uh, oh, really? At, well, at the time, Huey was playing the clubs, right? I mean, oh. early... Well, he was still... Well, this is maybe a little bit... Let me go back a little bit. This is when we were in Santa Cruz and breaking out. Okay. And, we, and our manager, Bobby, knew his manager real well. I think his name was Bob Brown. Anyway, uh, Bobby, you know, got us on some early Huey shows, which he was playing the clubs at the time. There was one night we played in Carmel at the Mission Ranch, mm. and Huey was headlining, and it was like a two, three hundred seat club in Carmel, mm. which is just okay. south of San Jose, yep. near, very close to Monterey. And anyway, yep. the Mission Ranch, about two or three hundred people in there, and and Huey was looking for a, a talent agency to to book him. And there's a there was a talent agency called Monterey Peninsula Artists that booked some of the biggest bands in, in the music business. I mean. The cars were booked by them and a mm-hmm. bunch of big bands. Anyway, that night we were in the we were opening for him when Monterey Peninsula Artists came in there and signed him to uh to a booking you know uh, booking uh, contract. So uh-huh. and it was uh-huh. a great show. I remember watching Huey and just those guys were phenomenal on stage. Yeah, man. I believe it. I believe Huey it. Huey on harmonica and the band was it was just phenomenal. And actually, when we were still independent and Huey was starting to really break. He asked us to go on a Northwest tour with him, and, and sports had just hit. Yeah, we were that's still nice. we were still unsigned, and we had "I'll Do It for You" out, and we went up on the Northwest tour with him, and it was phenomenal. It was a great experience. So but, you got to be out on the road, opening for Huey as sports is like taking over. Yes, the country, it was. Basically. It was. It was crazy. It was. Man, it was, I mean, they were playing mainly a lot of big, like college gymnasiums uh-huh. and that kind of thing and sold out every night was crazy and we we wow. were this band that really nobody had ever heard of but sure. we were going out and, and it, we were doing great it, the crowd was digging us and yeah and that's right after that too is when atlantic kind of started sniffing around and saying, hey, okay man. okay yeah, so yeah how does that feel when you go from being the struggling band that's playing to you know 200 people in a small club somewhere to fronting, I mean, is there a moment where you're sitting there thinking, this is coming true, you know? This is the yeah. thing that I've been trying to do, and it's starting to happen. Well, and you told me that you'd like to hear different highlights of, of the people's careers and stuff. Yeah. Honestly, one of one of our highlights, and it was with Yui, and this was after sports, and it just hit it huge, and he, he played a sold-out show on New Year's Eve at the Oakland Coliseum, and we were the opening band. Oh, wow. And we were still... I think we were just about to get signed at this time with, with Atlantic. And, and we were an opening band. It was us, Los Lobos, and Huey Lewis. New oh, Year's wow. Eve with Oakland Coliseum. It was sold out. Huey Lewis came down from the, onto the stage in a, in a cable car. You know? No way. <laughs> this, really? This cable car. And, and here we are backstage at a Bill Graham, you know, promotion. And there's, you know, this amazing yeah. food laid out. And Bill Graham just treated his bands, uh, you know, unbelievable. So that was happening. So we opened that show in, in, in Oakland that night and then went and played headline. There was a club in Santa Cruz called The Catalyst. And it's a, it's a pretty famous club on the West Coast. And it's about a thousand-seat club. And so we opened the show, sold-out show for Huey up there and then got in bands. 
and drove down to the Santa Cruz to play the sold-out Catalyst show, which was a thousand people. So, oh wow! So that that for me that was one of the highlights. Yeah. Of, you know. Yeah. So. Yeah. Did you guys ever have to relocate to L.A. or re- did you manage to stay based in the Bay Area? No, we 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 stayed our whole career in Santa Cruz. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah. yeah. For you, and, wow. And there was some other bands. There was a band called The Humans out of Santa Cruz that got signed mm-hmm. to IRS, which was. Uh, what was it? The uh, IRS Records was, I think, the police. The, yeah, oh yeah, that's uh, that, Miles Copeland, Stuart Copeland's Miles, brothers label. Yes. And yeah. The, so the Santa Cruz band called the Humans, and then there was a band called the Call that came out of Santa oh, Cruz. Oh, great Bean. band. Yes. Yeah. They came out. We knew those guys. They came out of Santa Cruz too. So there was a little sense. scene happening. Yeah, a little scene happening there. Okay. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay, so then the next album comes out, Looking for Adventure. This one is really even slicker, and it, but it's yeah. produced by Keith Olsen, who is super hot at the time. I mean, that same year he produces that White Snake album that, you know, again, takes over the world. I, I actually yeah. really love that album to this day. But he's got a, a lot of a really good pedigree. There's Rick Springfield in there. There's Starship. There's... Bad Company, 38 Special, all these bands, you know, that are really hot at that time. Well, and, Again, and, and Pat, Pat Benatar, too. Oh, yes, yes. Hit, 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 hit me with your best shot. Which, oh, that's right. So here, here's a great story about that, okay? So, okay, so actually, Keith Olsen produced one song on, on that Looking for Adventure album, and it was Weekend Presence of Beauty. That's the only okay. song. Everything else was was B. A. Robertson, which was the British. Really, guy. he produced some oh. of them. We actually kept a few of his songs, and ended up letting go of B. A. and getting Bobby, our our manager, who produced "I Do It for You," our first album. Bobby came back in, back in and kind of took over production. We re-recorded a lot of that album, but Keith Olsen produced the "Week in the Presence," and. What happened with that song is uh, head of A and R in in New York for Atlantic gave us a song "Week in the Presence." I, I really didn't like the song. Really uh, didn't like. It. Really. And he he said he said, "Listen, this is your second Atlantic rap record. We really need something to bust you guys out, you know." And they, and this guy in, in New York was like, "I think this is a song for you guys. I really believe in this." Blah blah blah. And so he talked to Keith. I talked. Keith Olson called me, and we talked. I kind of told him my reservations about the song. You know, I said it's a little too poppy. I, you know, yeah. I'm just not. But he said, "Listen, I, I can, I can do a great production." Went, I went down, hung out with Keith, and 
this is another one of those rock star moments because I go down uh, to the studio in L.A. and Bobby and I, our man, my manager and I, went down there and we pull up to Keith's studio and just walking out the door is is the lead singer, what David Coverdale of White Yeah, Street. yeah, David Coverdale. <laughs> He's walking out and getting into a red Ferrari, and I'm no. thinking, and I'm thinking, okay, you know, here we are in L.A. with this, you know. Uh-huh. I, you know, I'm st- this is all making you know, an impression on me. As a, I'm still, I don't know. It's still, it's still fun to see this kind of stuff. That's crazy. So I met with Keith, and he once again, this was a track that was kind of done in L.A. with L.A. session guys. This was uh, that okay. one, that one track, that week yeah. in the present. And so I, I was in there singing it. It sounded great. It sounded like you know slick, and hit, it sounded like a hit. But I walked out of the studio and I, I grabbed my manager and I said, Bobby, come here. We walk out in the parking lot and I'm just like, man, this, I just feel like, you know, this is not us, man. He says, okay, well, let's, let's go talk to Keith. So Keith came out and we're walking out in the parking lot and Keith's saying, listen, Pat Benatar could not stand Hit Me With Your Best Shot. She really? did not like that. And he said, I produced that song for Pat. She did not want to do that song. She thought it was, you know, no way. derogatory toward women. She just didn't uh-huh. like the song. And and he said, I talked her into it. She did the song. It became one of her biggest hits. He said, just go in there, sing your heart out on this song, and just, you know. Uh-huh. So he basically, you know, kind of taught me into singing it. Right. Sang the, do you I want to hit song. or don't you? Yes. Yeah. And at the same time we're recording the song, Allison Moyer, I think is her name. Yeah, Allison Moyer. And, in, in England, was also cutting the same song, Week in the Presence. Yeah. Uh, and so Atlantic has finds out about this, and they're like, we've got to get this song out. We've got to get it out before them. So they, they kind of rush us in to do a video and get the song out before hers came out because they didn't want you know, her to steal the thunder. And, yeah. But they're... There was there was really no thunder to steal because you know I don't I don't think that song ever even charted I I don't I don't remember it charting so it got yeah. it got some airplay I mean I remember the Bay Area was playing it because you know we were a Bay Area band but, sure. but I don't think we we kind of flinched really when it wasn't us it wasn't yeah. us, you know, so Cause that was going to be my question if everyone's saying to you we've got a hit here we want to yeah. give it to you just go along yeah. for the ride it may not yeah seem comfortable but believe yeah. me you're going to love this did they not put enough muscle behind it to you know get it out there like they promised or was it just well, falling flat or what's the deal I, I don't know i think people can kind of sense when something's just yeah. kind of you know almost cookie cutter you know yeah i, think, I mean i i just i don't know i just yeah. i come that whole like i say creedence clear water and sure that kind of stuff where it just seems so real, and, and I think people can kind of sense that. But i got to admit, it sounds great. When I listen to it to this day, it, it sounds great to me, that song. Uh-huh. But, just wasn't but, you. But, yeah, I don't even, I don't even know if Al, I don't know what happened with Alison Moyet's version of it. I never paid attention. She had a couple of hits earlier than that in the States, but that was kind of it. Yeah. So, okay. I, I think the story I'm telling you is, is so you've probably heard this same story from other bands and you know, uh, even yeah. as far as record companies trying to control. Sure. One of my favorite, we had just gotten signed to Atlantic, and, and I was living in Santa Cruz, and I went, Todd Rudgren was playing at the Santa Cruz Civic. And oh, wow. I'm a big Todd Rudgren fan, too, yeah. and a friend of mine got me backstage to meet him, and I, I was pretty excited about meeting him. I said, yeah, we just got signed to Atlantic. 
And here's one of my heroes. And he said, oh, the beginning of the end. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no, really? You guys put out a couple more albums, but it never really quite gets over the hump. You know what I mean? There's not that oh, I do. signature hit. There's not that. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, when you're while this is going on, are you aware of this? Are you thinking, man, what's not clicking? Or are you thinking, hey, this is we're we're on the merry-go-round. We're going, you know, it's gonna something's gonna happen eventually here. At least we're playing music for a living. It's that and next thing is gonna get us there. That's the thing, you know. The band was tight. I mean, as far as just people, we had been together with the same guys except. For just one little keyboard player had been replaced at, at one point for the second Atlantic record. But we believed in what we were doing, and we loved playing music. I mean, you know, we were... Yeah. We, so after the Atlantic thing, after we, after we, you know, after that whole thing kind of fell apart, our manager said, look, w- let's go back in like we did for I Do It For You, our first record. Let's go back in the studio. We'll finance it ourselves and just play music. Just do what uh-huh. you... So we did a did a thing called Dig Down Deep, which is just it's just yep. the band. It's just the band, and, and we okay. by, by that time, I didn't I didn't care about writing for commercial, you know, whatever. I was yeah. just I was just wanting to play the music that was coming out of the band, and that's what we did okay. for the next two. Uh, Stan Paul's a little, it's a little slick, but it's still for that time. It was for that was yeah. our last record, Stan Paul. For that time, it was I, I really I really enjoyed making the record. We had fun with sure. it, and it was it was poppy, but it's got I don't more know. Muscle. I like a lot of pop music. Yeah, you know, yeah. I like a lot of pop music. So you were in the same vein as so many of so many other bands at that time that were doing yeah. kind of poppier versions of Springsteen. Basically, I mean, there's bands like the Cruzados, and uh, mm-hmm. in fact. One of the th- one of the questions that Mallory, the listener, asked me to ask you, which I hadn't considered, was whether there was ever any confusion between Eddie and the Tide and Eddie and the Cruisers, because that was really big at the time too. And in fact, 
John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band are a really excellent band of a similar ilk as you, that sort of poppier version of Springsteen that's kind of happening at the time. Were you guys ever confused for one another? Was that ever a detriment in any way to, I there's, don't know. There's this. a story, yeah, there's a story I can tell you. We were playing in Fresno. There was a club, or a big place called, I think it was a big club called the Star Palace in Fresno. And we were, you know, we, this was around that time with the Beaver Brown Band and all that. Uh-huh. And, uh, we were playing the show, and some guy in the crowd yells out, uh, what was the big song from Beaver Brown? The, uh, on the Dark Side. On the dark side, on the yeah. dark, he's screaming that out at the top of his lungs. Play on the dark side, and I'm like, and I, I've been down to the dude. I said, listen, that's not us, man. <laughs> so you know, it, Sorry it, it to was. Sorry you. <laughs> yeah, you know. So we did get a little bit of that because because of the, and at the time somebody was saying, why don't you change your name just to the Tide? Yeah. We were acting, we were kicking that around and just from Eddie and the Tide, just losing Eddie, and, but huh. you know. What is uh, Eddie and the Tide, by the way? Where'd that name come from if no one's named Eddie? Well, we were rehearsing. There was a great rehearsal hall in Santa Cruz where a lot of the bands were rehearsing at the time. And we were called the Suburbs at the time. And there was a band out of, I want to say, Minneapolis uh, in Minnesota. And they they were called the Suburbs. And they'd already had a record out, apparently. And so we got a call one day. We were playing around all over California in the suburbs, and we got a call one day from a lawyer in, in Minnesota saying, hey, well, I have a band back here. They have a record out. They're called the suburbs, and if you don't you know, cease and desist order, basically, mm. you've, got to, you've got to change your name because there's already a suburb. So, okay. so we were making enough racket as the suburbs, I guess, to get their attention. But So we were rehearsing in this little, cl- uh, little place in Santa Cruz, and, we were writing down all these names, and we have a, a list of about 20 or 30 names, and I go home that night, and I fall asleep, had this whole dream of this Eddie the Tide band. And I came back the next day, and I said, look, guys, I had this dream, and the name <laughs> of the band was Eddie and the Tide, and everybody loved it. Oh, good. Everybody loved it, so we went with well, It's a great rock and roll name. Okay. Yeah, okay. yeah. Another weird question, why is Dig Down Deep so hard to find? It's not on Spotify or iTunes. I haven't even heard that album because it's not that there, easily. Recently, yeah, recently, that's a good question. Recently, somebody, I think, has been posting some songs on YouTube because uh, Okay. The, my drummer called me the other night and was talking about, hey, I just heard some songs from Dig Down Deep, and one of his favorites and one of mine actually from that album is a song called Nothing But a Dream.
So okay. that song is, is on, um, I, I believe it's YouTube. So it's on YouTube. I think, okay. I think it's starting to sneak out there a little bit. Yeah. I don't really know. We've never really released it to iTunes, or I don't know why. I don't. Yeah, what's the deal with that? I've talked to some other people about that, and it sounds like, because I think even the albums of yours that are on there, they haven't always been on there. Correct me if I'm wrong. And so I've talked to other people, and it sounds like sometimes it's just a matter of some paperwork. Like, there's, you know, everyone has to, we have to sign papers to make sure everyone involved gets compensated accurately and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, some people yeah. don't make it a priority to sign the paperwork. What's the deal? That's kind of kind of what happened. Yeah, there was a point a few years back where we all got together and uh, you know and, and kind of agreed to put some stuff. We actually recorded a a, a song for a live album. Uh, mm. Oh yeah, Eddie and the Tide Live, which was recorded at a club in Northern California. And anyway, we recorded a new song called San Jose Serenade, which I'm also very proud of that recording. story of the band actually in that in that song and uh, oh interesting we recorded that song and at the same time we were talking about putting re-releasing a bunch of stuff to itunes and i don't know why i really don't but dig down deep is starting to make its its presence okay. known a little bit on youtube okay right now. good yeah so, so w- while this is all happening i mean as we've said you didn't quite cross over but you are a working band other mm-hmm. than huey lewis are you guys going out on fun tours with bands you like are you headlining what are, what's kind of the story of these middle years of like 87 to 89? That was pretty tough time because you have a window as a band, I think. You have a window, uh-huh. a certain window where something's got to happen. You know, something's got to happen. Some yeah. big song's got to kick, Some something. And so we were making a good living, man. We were, you know, we were a good, we were a good live band. I really, I really believe that. I mean, people that uh-huh. saw us live just, you know, they would come and talk to me about how our live show was not always being ca- what they thought was being captured on recordings at the yeah. show. And so I was always proud of that fact. And we 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 won another Barrya Music Award, the Bammy. Uh, we won Best Club Band there two years in a row, which was oh, which cool. was really cool. I thought so. Yeah. So, but but yeah, there comes a point where. And this was before YouTube and, and putting stuff out there yourself. And I mean, sure. we record those two albums, but we just weren't getting the airplay again. You need radio yeah. airplay to, to get that. Oh, this is a new song, but I didn't try to check it out, but we weren't really getting the. So it was kind of the beginning of like, yeah, you know, uh, 
I remember we were riding up to, uh, the band was playing a show up in uh, Reno, I believe it was. And uh, we were driving up to Reno. I just said to the band, I said, look, let's take the summer off. Man, this is this is right after Stan Tall was recorded. It was just kind of a tough time. And honestly, that was it. That We, just uh, took, we took the long summer. Really? Oh, man. But, but, you know, we had some great shows. And our last show at the Catalyst was really it was it was really I don't know we knew it was our last show and so it was it was really special we had a great crowd and huh. it just felt really it felt really good but you know I I just to me it's all about the moments so you know yeah and, and, yeah and, I, and we had so many great moments I told you I was a Todd Rundgren fan one night I get yeah. a call from from our manager and this was in the mid eighties and toward, toward like almost early nineties and. I get a call from the manager, and he says, look, Greg Ken's recording a new song. He wants you to cut up and sing background vocals. So I said, okay. So, nice. And this is in Fantasy Studios, which was built by Creative Clearwater, right? Yep. And there's, I want to say there's three or four different studios in that complex. And where we record a lot in Fantasy was Studio C. And if I'm not mistaken, that is the studio that Credence did a lot of their recordings. Oh, wow. Right. So here I am, you know, I get the call, come up to, to sing this Greg Ken song, sing some backups on it. And there's Todd Rudman sitting behind the control, you know, no <laughs> the engineering board. And, and next thing I know, I'm in the studio with Todd singing background vocals on this song. And, you know, I would never have dreamed when I was a kid listening to Todd Rudman records, yeah. you know, in my bedroom that one day I'd be singing on a mic right next to him. So, yeah. Oh, that's you know. amazing. Very yeah, cool. I mean, very it cool. was very cool. It was, and then, and then also we had two two uh, two songs in movies. We had a song. Uh, oh, let's see. It was called "Running Wild, Running Free," which was kind of a regional hit for us. In, in That's the such Bay a great area. song. Yeah. Thanks, man. I love it. On this thing called the Basement Tapes on MTV. Oh, sure, and I remember that. It was the beginning show. of MTV. Yeah. I mean, this was back when MTV was just breaking out, and every the band wanted to get on it. And we were an unsigned band, and we submitted this tape for Running Wild, Running Free, and it started climbing. I mean, every week we get voted next. You know, yeah, you're in next week. Yeah, you're in next week. And finally, it came down to you know final four or something. A band called Track out of Sacramento won it, but we came in second. And oh, no way. Uh, a movie producer that was doing a Jamie Lee Curtis movie called Grandview USA with Patrick Swayze and, and Jamie Lee Curtis. 
that he was doing a movie and he saw that song run wild and he called our manager and said i want that song in my movie so we got that in there and that was a we all went and saw the movie and you know <laughs> jamie lee curtis is up there you know with the yeah. scene where he's in this car and it's just i don't know it was that was a highlight another highlight oh, that's great hearing yes. your i mean that's got to be amazing you're uh you're hearing your song while watching it on the big screen it's yeah. so much, it's you know more maybe even more impactful than hearing it on the radio. I don't know. But yeah, yeah and I, you I, know, I thought of that before. And honestly, we we had I think we had the most success when we were just just I do it for you. You know, was our first album, and I you know it just seemed that was the statement of Eddie and the Tide was in that album. Was, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and I think people felt it, and that's why that went on to be one of the biggest selling independent records in the Bay Area was. You know, people just love that yeah. that record and that recording. That's so good. It's so good. Yeah. So then, when you take the summer off, and this is this is a something I always find really fascinating, are these transitions in people's life where they have to go from the the realization hits of like, okay, well, I guess I'm not going to be a musician anymore. I guess yeah. that chapter of my life is over. Now what? You know? Yeah. And what was that like for you? What when, what did what what was now what? What did that look okay. like? Okay. So I had a best friend in Santa Cruz was a, uh, a carpenter. He, you know, he called me up. Well, I, actually, I called him up, I think, and I said, look, the guitar player, both the guitar player and I, you know, Johnny and I were both like all of a sudden, okay, what are we going to do here? So we had this great friend, Jim, that was a carpenter, and he called us. Well, we got in touch with him. Let's put it that way. We got in touch with him, and he hired us both to be to teach us the trade and we uh, we got in and the guitar player to this day is a contractor now wow right? a successful wow. uh contracting business and uh and so for that for him that was that and uh for me i get a call from uh during this time in the early 90s i get a call from greg ken's bass player and steve wright and he says look i'm sitting here with uh doug clifford from credence uh, Gosh. And he, and wow, he wants to cream. he he wants to meet you. Uh-huh. And he he liked Eddie and the Tide. He likes your voice. And so I I went up and met Steve and 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 Doug Clifford and had you know had lunch and we talked and talked about Creedence and the whole thing. And they were gonna, they were starting that Creedence revisited. Yeah, I think I think, I think is that what that's what they call it. Yep, right? Creedence Clearwater revisited. Yep. And so I was. I didn't really know it, but they were kind of auditioning at that time for that. And so, oh, so, so you were so almost I, the singer for Creedence Clearwater Revival. You know, that's what happened. Wow. I, I mean, I can hear that know, actually. You say that, I, that makes sense to me. You have yeah. that sound. I can yeah, see that. It was it was fun, man. I remember driving away, going, "Dad, dumb, man!" I just you know I just hung out with Doug Clifton from Creedence. Wow. I, mean, I, I grew up with you know Bad Moon Rise and Proud Mary, all yeah. that you know. So. So anyway, that was that's that's just, but then from then on I moved back to Nashville. I've still I've done my own recordings. I've just done you know things I've done myself and uh-huh. did a thing called My Days in the Desert. My days in the desert brought me closer to you, stripping me down to nothing but what was true. Lord, have mercy on us, broken hearted. Help us through the pain with your healing water, oh yeah. My days in the desert. My days in the desert, just a broken man. Help to pull. 
I did yep. that with a guy named George Marinelli, which to this day he's one of my favorite guitar players. He played with Bruce Hornsby in the range. He's I've actually been now. trying to get him on here. Oh man, you got because, to. Well, I want to. to. I, I yeah. love Bruce Hornsby in the range, and I've tried yes. to get Bruce on. And yes. Bruce's people tell me he doesn't like to talk about the past. Okay. So I thought, well, let's okay. see if I could get somebody else from the range on here. And I've yeah. reached out yeah. to a few people and have never heard back. He's one of them. Oh, well, interesting. I, I tell you, man, he's a great guy. And, and I remember seeing him play with John Fogarty at the Oakland Coliseum when Bruce Hornsby wow. had hit his song, The Way It, Way it Is, with her. Yeah. Hit, uh-huh. just, just hit number one. And I was, I was in the crowd watching John Fogarty and I was watching Bruce Hornsby op- open up. And I remember thinking, man, that is, you know, George Marinelli is one of the best guitar players I've ever seen live. Yeah. And, and and here, years later, I'm in the studio with him here, Crazy. during my days my days in the desert. And um, that the the group we got together for that was uh, Marty Jordan, who played with uh, Van Morrison on yeah. uh, Tupelo Honey, all that stuff. Yep. Uh, the bass player from John Prine's band was, you know, came in for that session, and it was just. I don't know. There's, I was really, I was really proud of some of that stuff on that. How do you make that happen? How, I mean, I, I don't even know at this point. You know, you're all. Uh, I hope this doesn't. This isn't the wrong word, but you're all sort of former professional musicians. Some of you, some of them may still be. I guess because you're all in Nashville. But how do you rally something like that? Do you? Hey guys, I'm I'm Steve Eddie Rice from Eddie and the Tide. I want to work on some solo material. Who wants to come join me? Or are you well, friends with these guys? How does this even happen? Okay, here's, here's the connection, and it's all about connections. Okay, sure. our first our first roadie in Santa Cruz is a guy named Ross Hogarth. Now, Ross Hogarth has become one of the best engineer slash producers. He's done a lot of stuff, man. He worked on last band Halen Record. Okay, I was going to uh, say, I think worked, I know that name. Yeah. He worked with uh, John Mellencamp on uh, on a few records. Um, he's just done a lot of stuff. Anyway, Ross was, he knows George Marinelli from the Bruce Hornsby days. And Ross was our first roadie. He was our first guitar player. Oh, interesting. So he moved on to Los Angeles and started climbing the, you know, the engineering thing and doing great. Uh And so, um, he introduced me to George Marinelli. And so when I was ready to do this project, I called up George and he lives here and has a home studio and he put together the musicians and, you know, it just uh-huh. came came together, and uh, wow. you know, I was just really, I was really proud of that, and I That's still great. enjoy it, man. I'm, I'm going to do another project, I think, sometime at the end of the summer too. And Good. I don't know. There's people here in Nashville you can just call up, and sure. they're not out on the road. And and George and I have a relationship now, and and just different musicians here. There's a ton of musicians here, and a lot of them are just just want to keep playing, you know. Yeah, I got to thank you for sending that to me, and more than that. The Eddie Rice Project album is, Yeah, I've been listening to it on a loop. It is perfection to me. And I, uh, I'm i so impressed by it. I'm going to tell you a story at the very end about, about something that happened last night in relation to this album. But that is what, that, if I had known that album when it came out, it would have been probably my favorite of the year. I think it is perfect oh. from the very beginning to the end. And one of the things I love about your approach now is that there's a sort of spiritual edge to some of the songs but it's never preachy it comes from like hard-earned wisdom you know and it's pleas for beauty
beauty and love and forgiveness and all these wonderful traits that we should all, all these ideals that we should all aspire to, but the, you, you bring it in such a, an endearing, beautiful way that it's, it's very, it's very uplifting to me and very inspiring to me. I love it. Oh, this life is bigger than you and me. Gonna take my troubles to the wild rolling sea and let nature heal me. Let nature heal me. Gonna let those waves crash around me. Gonna set my troubles, gonna set them free and let nature heal me. Jump in this river. Float downstream, just go with the flow, let it wash me clean and let nature heal me. Let nature heal me. Well, I know there's an answer outside these doors, in these wild spaces I can find a cure and And I'm wondering where this, are, are you an active Christian? Have you had some kind of experience in your life that made you so so wise and think about these things so <laughs> profoundly? Where is this coming yeah. from? Because it is gorgeous. Okay, John, it's called divorce. Okay, okay it's <laughs> called divorce. I, honestly, that was that when I, I went through a divorce, you know, and it was, and I had a daughter who was three years old at the time, and it was the hardest thing. You know, it was it was the hardest thing I've ever been through, and 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 and. But out of that, you have to, you know, kind of walk through the shadow. You know, yeah, yeah. And and I and I just and I walked through the shadow, and that's first of all my days in the desert. That that was when I yeah. divorced, and then and then um, with Eddie Rice Project, it's just I'm 59 years old right now, and I don't have any. I'm not trying to do anything other than just make music that I like. And, and I'm sure you hear this from other musicians. I'm mm-hmm. doing music that I love doing that I'd want to hear. And that, 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 and luckily, I mean, I, you know, I had on the Eddie Rice project, I had the keyboard player from Eddie and the Tide and, and the drummer, you know, Chris yeah. and Scott, both, yeah. both from Eddie and the Tide. And so, you know, I just, nobody was telling me, oh, you have to sound like this. You have to do yeah. this. No, Nobody yeah. was telling me that. It was just, I was in the studio and I was like, look, guys, this is, this is what I'm hearing. Let's do this. And, and it wasn't a big budget. We didn't have much money, but but we just all went in there with, and, and everybody on that project played, man, just right, from their, right from their spirit, right from the heart. And yeah. everybody in the band is, we all have to walk through our shadows, you know, and sure, our, and our sure. dark. And so I appreciate saying that. I would say I'm I'm more spiritual than I'm religious. I have okay. more of a spiritual nature. Just I well I can, I can I noticed, but you know then there's a song like I think about Jesus or yeah. you know they, if love was just a word, life is short. Right. I mean these are all these are all songs that come I think from as you say coming out the other end of a yeah. dark period with a lot of yeah. wisdom and and light. And I yeah. just think you put it across so gorgeously. I cannot, I can't, I love it so much. I can't, I don't even know the words to tell you how much I love it. And I'm going to wow. tell you a story about it at the end. I want to close with it. But sure. before that, you got to tell me 
some of your best stories. You got to tell me what like like we've said. First of all, wait, are you a nurse? I think I heard that that's your job. Yes. Well, when I moved back to Nashville, okay, once again I was doing carpentry, and I was you know for a little while I did that, and then I was just breaking my back, literally breaking my back, and uh-huh. I, I was like, man, I got to do something else. My mom was a nurse, so. I got my LPN license, you know, which is a little okay. easier than an RN license. And so I did that, and the hospital I was working at for, for eight years as an LPN, all of a sudden decided, oh, we don't want LPNs anymore. So now now I'm working in the pharmacy. So, so okay. it's, been a, it's been a whole kind of thing. But so that, okay. but I went, for a while, yeah, I was a nurse, and it, it was I really enjoyed that. I enjoyed, the, you know, hearing people's okay. stories. And that actually helps with songs, too, boy. You hear oh, some amazing stories, yeah. So. I bet. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So tell me your tell me your best stories, the things that you just can't believe happened to you. You've shared some good ones already, but I wonder if there's another one or two out there. Well, you know, we went on our first tour with uh, with Atlantic Records, just us in a van driving across country. And uh, we ended up at the bottom line in New York City, which – you know, to me, it's holy grail of, of you know, just rock and roll and, and some of the best band. I mean, I remember reading about Springsteen doing a big stand at the bottom line in New York when Born to Run came out. And so yeah. here I am on that here I am on that same stage wow. in New York City and Atlantic had cut some of the Atlantic people had come down to see us. And it was it was it was a fun night. And our guitar player was from New York. So his whole family, which was a big Italian family, they were in the crowd and. So just playing the bottom line, and, and, and from there we went on and played another place called the Stone Pony, which is, a, once again, you know, a, a, where Springsteen came out of. Uh-huh, so, uh-huh. you know, um, just just going to some of these places that I'd read about, you know, oh, wow, and here we are on those on those stages. And the Stone Pony's a, a small little club, but it, it becomes so much more in your mind when you're reading about where these people sure. came out of these clubs. And so... Um, Kind of went through a lot of my the highlights was you know playing with Yui and yeah having him tell stories and meeting Todd Rudgren and having him tell me stories I mean really it's, it's got to be amazing to like yeah. you were saying play on these stages and interact with your heroes and follow in the it really, steps and it really was and and you see you know you see the the good and the bad of the whole showbiz thing you know you see yeah. you see the dark side you know where people get caught up in you know a lot of things that aren't real healthy for you you see that side of it you see you see that you know sure. uh, uh one one kind of funny story was uh we were i think our first atlantic album was out yeah it wasn't out and we were asked to open for, for asked for open for billy idol at uh cal oh, wow cal Cal Expo in, in Sacramento, which is a huge outdoor amphitheater, yep. right? Huge. Uh-huh. And this is Billy Idol at the top of his MTV, you know, White Wedding and sure. Rebel Yell. And it's sold out. It's packed. And um, we were just releasing our first last record, still trying to get a little foothold in the door. And, and we went out and played a set. And it was tough. It was tough. Oh, I, mean, really? I had people, I had, I had I was catching beer cans at one end. Yeah. I mean, it was tough, but we played our show. We played our 30-minute set, and we were trying to, you know, we were rocking it, man. But it yeah. was still a tough crowd. We walked off the stage, and the stage manager was clapping. I said, did you see what happened out there? And he was like, man. He said, man, you guys made it to your show last night in Reno. The opening band only got two songs, and they had oh. to walk off. 
So, so he said, you guys made it through your whole set. Be glad. And, and then I looked over, and there was Billy kind of giving me the thumbs up. So, oh, really? Oh, that's you know, cool. So, so that was back in the in the heyday of the – yeah, so uh, that's, you know, it was all about okay. – it was just kind of a, just kind of meeting and seeing the different aspects sure. of showbiz and meeting. meeting These and, are the stories, man. This is what yeah. – you know, you're at work – during the – you're at work at the pharmacy in Nashville, and you're thinking – I had an experience with Billy Idol and Todd Rundgren and exactly. Lewis, you know, these guys I, don't even know. <laughs> and that's what that's what I really liked when I was listening to your blogs and, and different people. And I think you're doing a great job. Stephen Bishop was one of my favorite. Oh yeah, yeah. Songwriters, and I think you're doing a great job. At, and and a lot a lot of you know you people want to tell their stories, man. Yeah. You know, they want this out there, and I think you're doing a great job. Oh, thank of you. Get, of, of getting people to tell their stories. And, and Stu Cook, man, come on, that was a... That was... We got lucky with that one. I, yeah. I, had, I mean, I just figured it would be interesting to talk to a guy who had been in a world-famous band who's now doing yeah. the revisited thing, and how does that feel? I had no idea he would open up the way that he did about the, uh, Fogarty yeah. and the drama. And the, the Woodstock, the stuff you played from yeah. Woodstock, that I'd never heard that from Credence, and... It sounded unbelievably it good. It did. It was man. great. It was oh, great. Oh man, I know. they were on fire as a band during Woodstock. I, and it, it it puzzles my mind how I don't know why that never got released as far as you know in the movie. I but I, I heard the story, so you know. Yeah. But, I guess but anyway. John just didn't think it was worth it, or didn't yeah think it was good enough or wanted it out there. It's crazy. I got to ask you one of one other question relating to MTV that Mallory, the listener, asked me to give you, and she wanted to know. You know, the running wild, running free video, you guys playing ice instruments, mm -hmm. basically. Yeah. It's so yeah. classic. She was wondering if that was very expensive and something that comes up, you know, uh, are kind of the finances. You know, Atlantic is, I would assume, paying for that video. And um, you maybe had to, you probably had to pay them back and maybe, maybe well, didn't see any royalties or anything for a while. How did that all work? Well, what happened with Running Wild, Running Wild, Running Free was uh, we got it. We we weren't signed to Atlantic at the time. We, were, we it was on. I do it for you. Our it was still the record. first one. Okay, uh, it was still on that, and so we were starting to make a real name for ourselves in, in the Bay Area. And so uh, a, a TV station in Sacramento, in California, uh -huh. called us up. We'll call our manager up, and there was at the TV station there was a, a guy on the film crew that that just loved Eddie the Tide, just loved us. Good. And he he said, I want to do a video with you guys, and I'll pay for it. And he, wow, the ice house in Sacramento, um, we went up there, had an ice carver come in there, and he carved all those instruments up. And, you know, we didn't we didn't pay a dime of that. We did not pay a dime on that. Oh, fascinating. And, and so, yeah, it was a great, it was a great, and that's the one that came in second place on the MTV, MTV basement tapes. So. Oh, killer. Yeah, so. Yeah. Oh, wow, great. Well, uh, this was great, Eddie. I so I'm so grateful that you talked to me. And I want to close with a story. This is, this happened last night. So yeah. I've been uh, I've been listening to the CDs you were kind enough to send me on repeat, basically all weekend and everything. And I was in the car last night with my two boys. Uh, one is eight and one is four. And um, we were listening to the Eddie Rice Project. And our favorite song on that, my favorite song in theirs, is in this house. Yes. I love that song. I could play it yes. on repeat for days. And me, too. me too, actually. That's one Is of my it really? Yes. Oh, I love it it's one so of my... much. Yeah, yeah. So we're in the car last night driving around, and um, 
after it's over, my eight-year-old says, Dad, will you play that again? And uh, I said, yeah, sure. So I rewind it, my CD, I turn it back. And the three of us start singing along. And so me and my eight-year-old and my four-year-old are singing in this house every time you sing it. And I start kind of having a moment, you know, like this is, this is a this is a proud papa moment. I'm proud that I am showing my kids good music and I'm pr- I'm proud that they uh, that they realize it when they hear it. And we're having a moment with you and I tell them I said, "Hey guys, guess what? I get to talk to this guy tomorrow." And my 8-year-old says, "Dad, will you tell him how much we love in this house?" I said, "Yeah, absolutely." And I'm I'm almost kind of getting choked up now. It was so beautiful. And my youngest son, who's four, whose name happens to be Eddie and is partially named after Eddie and the Tide, uh, not specifically, but when we were having a kid and I thought, there, I wanted to give him a real rock and roll name. And there's so many great Eddies, like Eddie and yeah. the Tide, Eddie and yeah. the Cruiser, Eddie Better, yeah. Eddie Money. I want to give him a rock <laughs> name. And so I named him Eddie partially after you guys. And just this, just today, uh, I said, Eddie, do you know what I'm doing later? And he said, you're going to talk to the in this house guy and he said will you tell him that we love that song and that's my four-year-old and so i just want you to know that in some way the the things that you put out in this world creatively touch people and they touch me and they touch my my family and my boys and we had a really beautiful moment last night and it was thanks to you and so i just want you to know that that's happening out there whether you you're at work all day and you may or may not even be thinking about it but some of us are having beautiful experiences with your music, and I want you to know that. Well, you know, that is an awesome, awesome story. And, and, and when we were doing Eddie Rice Project, there was a moment when I was like, why am I going to do this? Why, why am I going to do this Eddie Rice Project? You know, you know, it's, you know, it's not like we're selling millions and there's millions uh-huh. of fans waiting. But I really appreciate you sharing that because that is why I – you know that just made my day. That just—that's why oh, you do music. That's why good. you do it. And so, yeah. you know, because really, I asked myself, do I even want to go back in the studio and do that? But I yeah. just had to, and that—and yeah. just just hear that story reconfirms why I did. Yeah. yeah so. Well, I'm glad. I, and I know, like you, like you've said, I've talked to a lot of people, and I'm always curious what that motivation is too, because it's it's unfortunately not going to get heard even though it deserves it. And that's not even your fault. That's the current music industry. That's yeah. just the way things are. So what motivates an artist to get out there and, and to put this stuff out there when who knows how many people will hear it? And it really it comes from an urge inside of you that you can't, an itch you can't scratch otherwise. Yeah. And yeah. thankfully there's people yeah. who, you know, you touched an eight and a four-year-old last night, and they're going to love that song for the rest of their lives and they're going to know who Eddie Rice is because of it. You know what I mean? So you never know. Well, no, that's the thing. You never know. And something, you know, the way the Internet is now, and if a song does happen to get just, you know, go viral for some artist yeah. out there that's, that's writing a song in a basement somewhere, and all of a sudden it just something snaps and people hear it, and all of a sudden it goes viral, and next thing you know, well, what was it that singer Lord was in uh, uh-huh. Australia or New, New Zealand or somewhere and had that song and all of a sudden, next thing you know, everybody knows, you know? Yeah, that's how it you works know? now. That's yeah. how it works. Yeah, so, so. Well, hopefully I can remind some people how great Eddie and the Tide and your solo stuff is and uh, 
Speaking of which, is there ever any chance of a reunion? I don't even know. Do you guys play shows ever? We haven't, and I just, you know, every once in a while we've talked about it, but it's just never, yeah. it just never felt like, yeah, we need to do that. It just never felt like, you know, never felt like the motivation, you know. So. If you put your, if you put Eddie on the tide on the on a marquee in Santa Cruz, are a couple hundred people going to show up? Do you think? I would, I would hope so. Yeah. <laughs> I would okay. Hope so. Well, I don't know. I really would. Yeah. But, but you know, you know, it was a great town for us, and the Bay Area was great to us. And, you know, like I said, I've got a, a great memories of just playing yeah. the clubs and having some unbelievably magical moments on stage. And, and even though we never broke huge, we still yeah. had that. We still were able to create magic on stage. There you have it, Steve Eddie Rice. I like that one a lot. He is such a good man, and I'm so glad we got to talk. And I wanted, I hope you guys heard some good music in there. I don't think I did a very good job of fully explaining why that Eddie Rice Project album is so great. Have you ever felt like you, you wanted to just give everyone you know a copy of an album because you know it will enhance their life? That's how I feel about it. It's not overtly religious or spiritual or anything. It's just positive. It sounds like a, an older guy who's gone through some ups and downs and has earned some hard-fought wisdom, and he is deciding to let positivity and love and some spirit and some brotherly love win in the end. And it'll, it just, it's uplifting. It's not sappy or overdramatic or anything like that. It just makes you feel better, and I'm so grateful for that. I mentioned there at the end how great my, my family and I love the In This House song. I'm going to play the whole thing at the end of this. So just stick around. You'll hear the whole thing. What you're listening to now, if you only buy one Eddie and the Tide album, I would probably recommend their live album. It's really good. And it takes the songs from all those kind of sleek later 80s albums and just strips it back to what they were really good at. So I think it's the perfect example of how strong this band could be. So this is track one off that album. It's called If You Want to Rock. It's so good. Thank you, Mallory, once again for uh, making the suggestion. I had them in mind, and I hadn't done it, and I'm so glad you uh, you pushed me to do it. I'm not going to even bother giving you a teaser for next week. I am so excited for you to hear next week's episode. It does file under E, but that's all I'm going to tell you. You're going to love it. That's all I can say. Huge thanks, as always, to my man, Yan the Man, for putting everything together. You're the best, buddy. Thank you. The business, as you know, you can find us on Facebook. You can like the page. You can keep in contact with us. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can tweet us at thehustlepod. Uh, go into the archives. Look, if this is your first time or you're new to us, go in and see if there's other guests that interest you. Check them out as well. Uh, subscribe, write us a review, whatever you can do. We will be back next Tuesday with an excellent episode. And don't forget, stick around and listen to In This House. We will see you guys later.
I pray for more love. 